Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. And we're both here today, <laughs> promise. Together, promise. we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way or to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way that people have hard conversations, and we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope that you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Thanks for joining us for real uh, for the last episode celebrating Native American and Alaska Native Heritage Month. To say that this has been an educational month for us is uh, an understatement for sure. Uh, we've both learned things about the history of our country and the history of its First Nations people uh, that we never knew before. And we made a new friend, uh, Chuck, who I will talk about literally every time I get the chance because yeah. I think it's super cool. Mr. Chuck Sams the third. Uh, and we've been able to share that knowledge and our new friendship with both our podcast <laughs> audience and uh, with our real life loved ones, actually. Yeah. And better than that, though, um, I have learned that my kids are being taught things in school that I never learned. In one of our conversations at the Thanksgiving table, uh, where we were discussing, you know, the light topic of colonialism, my oldest just blurted out, you know, they killed one native chief and put his head on a spike for like 25 years. Right. Uh, most people around the table were, well, A, they were shocked. And two, they were completely unaware of what she was talking about. Uh, I told her, I was like, hey, I only just learned the story of Chief Medicom and King Philip's War for our last episode on the real story of Thanksgiving. And so I was like, but hey, where did you learn that? Because sometimes... Sometimes she listens to our show, so I definitely was ready to, like, take credit for that education. Uh, but she told me that she learned it in social studies, so shout out to Mr. Murphy, 8th grade social studies teacher. Um, hey, and, I know the like, school she goes to. That is some quality book learning that she's getting there. Quality book learning. I went there, too. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, like, I, I know it's strange to be excited that your kid learned about something so gruesome. But I'm really encouraged that they're starting to teach about the unglamorous and often very gory history of our country in school. And like in the same way that it's essential for us to teach the truth of African-American history with all of its harsh realities, we have to educate our children on how our First Nations people were treated. Hmm. Because that education is what allows us to work together toward equity and justice for all Americans in the future. And it keeps us from repeating these same mistakes. And 
just to just to piggyback on that, and if anybody listening has been in the military, you just groaned. Sorry. Um, not just how, not just how our First Nations people were treated, but how they continue to be treated in our society. Um, we covered some of that. <laughs> Robin, for those of you who are not watching this, Robin just managed to drop the microphone just straight into her lap. Yeah. So hopefully yeah. <laughs> we'll have decent audio quality for the rest of the show. <laughs> I forgot where I was, what, what thought train you I You were saying on. something actually very profound. I'm sure. About how, how our First Nations people are treated in the modern day. Oh, yeah. And how we continue to talk about or how we tried to talk a little bit about that um, in our coverage of the Standing Rock um, uh, episode. Wow. My brain is just like completely off track now. Just yeah. derailed entirely. This is going to be a real humdinger of an episode. No, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, that's what humdinger means. Clearly. <laughs> Anyway, what I was going anyway. to say before I so rudely derailed myself is... You have to say the line now, though. You have to say the line that we're trying to become famous for. Oh, wait. But but I digress. This episode is... This is normally our on week where we research a little more with the Thanksgiving holiday landing this week and the world being what it is. Um, we are probably going to make this one a little shorter. It's probably going to come out closer to 45-ish minutes. Um, but what we wanted to do is kind of shift gears a little bit. We spent several episodes now like focused on the struggle and the hardship that Native Americans have faced because of European colonialism and its consequences. But uh, we definitely don't want to close out the series without celebrating some of the outstanding accomplishments that have been made by Native American people. We really want to end this series on a high note. Um, so today we're going to tell you about a few Native American people whose stories and accomplishments we think you should know. I'm really excited to tell these stories because, again, like I feel like I said every episode all month long, I didn't know these stories until we started researching these episodes. Yeah. And I feel I mean bad about it. Story of the pod, really, but yeah. It's been right. this is stuff this is stuff that's like I all all month has been stuff that I wasn't even like tangentially aware of. Like, oh yeah, I right. kinda heard of that. Except for Standing Rock, which you couldn't avoid. Um But the stories behind it yeah. and the the basis for like this the culmination of the frustration at this point. I had no clue. Yeah, true. Good point. So the first person we want to talk about is uh, a Mary G. Ross. And I think we tried to stick with people who were not like the obvious go-tos for right. for this. Um, yeah. Because... I mean, there we, we had there was a host of like historical Native American characters that we could talk about or um, – the ones that kind of everybody knows about that hit the top of every list. But we tried to pick ones that felt really meaningful for their contributions overall in fields that maybe people wouldn't have heard of them right. as regularly. Yeah. So we, we got it down to like two really, really stellar people, honestly. I'm <laughs> just 
really cool people. So yeah, Mary G. Ross. Um, so when the movie um, Hidden Figures was released in 2016, we were all introduced to the idea that the advancements we made in the space race were largely possible because of mathematicians and engineers whose roles in our space age are largely unknown. And so while the movie focused on a specific group of black women, in reality, there were many, many women whose intelligence and hard work made our scientific dreams a reality. And one of those women was Mary Golda Ross. Ross was born in Park Hill, Oklahoma, in 1908, just one year after it gained statehood. And I just want to pause because <laughs> she was born in 1908. We hadn't even achieved heavier than air flight yet. Like, let alone, oh, yeah, let alone dreamed of going to space. Oh, yeah. Um, so this was just one year after, like I said, Oklahoma had, Oklahoma had gained uh, statehood. Uh, she was the great-granddaughter of Chief John Ross, who was forced to lead the Cherokee Nation from their ancestral homeland in Georgia on the Trail of Tears, and who continued to lead the Cherokee Nation in their new location until his death in 1866. Right. Um, as a child, Ross was sent to live with her grandparents in Tahlequah, which was not too far from her home in Park Hill, which was considered at that time the capital of the Cherokee Nation. And her parents did that to give her better access to educational opportunities. And she credits the emphasis that the Cherokee Nation placed on education for both boys and girls for her ability to succeed throughout her career. In one interview, she said, I was brought up in the Cherokee tradition of equal education for boys and girls. It did not bother me to be the only girl in the math class. Another time, she noted, I sat on one side of the room and the guys on the other side of the room. I guess they didn't want to associate with me, but I could hold my own with them. And sometimes I did better. Boom. At age 16, she enrolled in Northeastern State Teachers College in Tahlequah, which was previously the Cherokee Female Seminary, which is a not very grand name for the first women's institution of higher education west of the Mississippi River. Um, that school's curriculum emphasized science with courses in botany and chemistry and physics. And that focus continued as the school became Northeastern State Normal School in, I believe it was 1909, and then Northeastern State Teachers College. Um, fun fact, the cornerstone of the seminary was actually placed by uh, Mary's grandfather, Chief Ross, in 1847. That is wild. That's actually super duper cool. Um, so Mary earned her bachelor's degree in mathematics in 1928 and during the Great Depression taught math and science at schools in rural areas of Oklahoma. In 1936, at age 28, she took a position as a statistical clerk for the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C. Um, the Bureau reassigned her in 1937 to be an advisor to girls at the Santa Fe Indian School in New Mexico. And then in 1938, she earned a master's degree from Colorado State Teachers College, where she took every astronomy course they had. And that's where the fun begins. When the United States entered World War II, 
Ross's father suggested that she move to California to look for better work opportunities. During the war, many women were hired to fill roles traditionally held by men, while the men served in the military and in paramilitary roles, and Ross was one of them. In 1942, she went to work as a mathematician for Lockheed. Yeah, that Lockheed, you heard that right. The company that would eventually become global aerospace industry leader and close NASA partner, Lockheed Martin. <laughs> it's a big One of the, deal. It's big a big deal. deal. Right. One of the first projects that Mary worked on was the P-38 Lightning fighter plane, which was one of the fastest airplanes in the world at that time. That plane was used extensively during World War II, and Ross's research on the effects of pressure on the fighter plane helped solve problems related to high-speed flight and aeroelasticity, which I legitimately had to Google, and I'm going to make you Google if you don't know it. Because um, yeah, it. <laughs> it's, it's a great word and great learning. For many people who were involved in the war effort, that, that period of time was marked by pretty much nonstop work. And Ross recalled that often at night, there were, quote, four of us working until 11 p.m., which I know, like, I was like, 11 p.m., what's the big deal? It's like 10.07 right now, my time we're recording. But you got to remember that the work-life standards in the 1940s were way different than they are today in our everything-is-connected-no-boundaries workplace environments. Yeah. Especially post-COVID. Yeah. Yeah, Robin. Right? You got a message from work 15 minutes ago. I 100% did. And what am I going to do when we're done recording? You're going to investigate. It's stupid. It's, Ridiculous. Yeah. But but also, I have the flexibility to have sat at my kitchen table and played D&D for four hours this afternoon. It's so like fair. But it's weird. But weird. Like this, the, the dynamics were different. So 11 p.m., four people in the office, that's a BFD. They didn't even have in 1942. cell phones. They actually had to like talk to each other and work. It's dumb. It's dumb. <laughs> Somewhere out there, there's, uh, there's, <laughs> there's a boomer listening to this podcast going, these millennials. I legitimately was thinking in my head, fucking millennials. <laughs> it was a joke. It was a joke. It was a joke. When the war ended, many professional women lost their positions to the men who came home to claim them. Uh, but Ross's work so impressed her colleagues at Lockheed that they paid for her to attend UCLA and complete a professional certification in engineering. By 1948, she had become one of 40 engineers in Lockheed's Advanced Development Programs. ADP. Which, right? which eventually became known as the Skunk Works, which was the company's top secret think tank. Mary was the only woman on the team, aside from the secretary, and she was also the only Native American on the team. Much of her research and writing at the Skunk Works still remains classified, even today, 70-plus years later. Another fun aside, in 1958... Ross appeared on the popular TV game show, What's My Line, where four panelists would attempt to determine the occupation of a guest by asking them a bunch of questions. I think they had like a list of things that they could choose from. Uh, and then when it was finally revealed that the appropriate title for Mary G. Ross was engineer for Lockheed, both the panel and the host were 
I said surprised, but I would imagine that shocked is probably more accurate. Yeah. 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 You were being real nice. You're <laughs> yeah. Um, which I'm sure, like, if it was me sitting in that chair, I would have been delighted. Pew. Pew. Right? Like, hair flip emoji, painting yeah. nails emoji. Totally. 100%. That's right. Um, as advancements were made in the American Missile Program, Ross found herself researching and evaluating uh, feasibility and performance of ballistic missiles and other defense systems for applications to her work. Uh, spaceflight often made use of missile advances originally developed for military purposes. Um, one example of this application was the Agena rocket. The Agena series of rockets were initially developed by Lockheed as a part of a reconnaissance and surveillance program. When that program was reshaped, the rocket design was used in a variety of other contexts. Um, Ross helped develop operational requirements for the Agena spacecraft, including its orbital, orbital, I hit every non-existent <laughs> syllable in that word. You did. Yep. It's good. Including its orbital dynamics, um, calculating the transfer orbit as the rocket left the earth's atmosphere, which like I'm saying these words, I, we wrote these words. I mm -hmm. couldn't tell you much more about what those words actually mean beyond how to make circle with spaceship so a spaceship doesn't crash that's all yeah. i got yeah uh the rocket eventually became a vital part of the apollo program and a total of 365 one for every day of the year agena rockets were launched between february 1959 and february 1987 you're smiling at me like you know that I have pronounced something wrong this whole no, time. No, I was laughing at the the one for every day of the year comment. <laughs> I don't know why that just struck me as funny, but it did. I, I, anytime I see that number, I cannot not think that. And I don't know why. It's, my brain just makes that association. I love it. It's great. For context, um, really just to drive home how incredible was... Ross's mind and the minds of the other engineers that got us to space for the first time, like not to sell them short, but really it was Ross and we all know it. Um, mm -hmm. An engineer today would use a computer program called MATLAB to solve problems like orbital dynamics. They would insert the right parameters to determine when the rocket would reach its destination. And MATLAB makes like magic and it happens. Ross and her colleagues did all of those calculations with a slide rule and a and a basic calculator. They didn't even have Texas Instruments, TI-83 no. plus, which- They could not write boobs on their calculator effectively. <laughs> I'm just gonna say like, what is the current TI-83 plus? Cause the TI-83 plus was like the shit back when I was in, uh, was in high school. There, there were like TI-90s, but we weren't around, allowed to use those because they could do full-on calculus for you. <laughs> With, right without you needing to know it so we weren't allowed yeah it was bad enough that the 83 could like make a graph that you could copy yeah yeah i i don't know because i will fully admit that i quit math after algebra 2 um because trying to learn math from my teachers was very difficult for me yeah i am um, i had a bad math learning experience in 8th grade it's the only the only 
class that I was actually failed at, at, at school <laughs> in that school. I wasn't failed. The teacher failed teaching me. I still passed right. the class, but it was really bad and not up to my normal standard. Anyway, terrible time <laughs> in math until like my senior year in high school, like really struggling. And then went back to a more elementary level math because I was trying mm-hmm. to take advanced math classes without knowing advanced math foundationals and sucking at it as you would. And um, went back and relearned the basics in my senior year in high school and then loved calculus in college. It was great. And I had to give it up because you can't take six majors at once because Uh, the advisors look at you like you're insane and tell you you'll be at school for 10 years. Let me tell you how you do it. (laughs) You just don't tell them what your majors are. Yeah, they really wanted to know. I know. I just picked one and then a different one the next year and then a different one the next couldn't do it look couldn't do it the point being guys neither one of us are ever going to be calculating orbital dynamics with or without a ti 83 plus it's just what we're getting at right fair that is fair during her career ross helped write nasa's planetary flight handbook which was the agency's comprehensive guide to space travel (laughs) and she worked on preliminary concepts for flights to mars and venus laying the groundwork for missions that have not yet come to fruition. Yeah. By the time that she retired in 1973, she had reached the rank of Senior Advanced Systems Staff Engineer and had worked on the Polaris reentry vehicle and the Poseidon and Trident missiles. Um, I mean, all of this to say her contribution to our understanding of the math and science of space travel are probably immeasurable. But then she didn't just stop once she retired. After she left Skunk Works, she dedicated her time to speaking, giving lectures in high schools and at colleges, encouraging young women and Native American youth to train for technical careers. In 2004, at age 96, she joined a procession of thousands of Native Americans at the opening of the National Museum of the American Indian on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., And she was wearing a traditional green calico Cherokee dress made for her by her niece, especially for that occasion. And that's significant because it was the first traditional dress that she had ever owned, despite her deep connection to her heritage and being the granddaughter of one of the greatest Cherokee chiefs of all time. um, She had never worn a traditional dress. Hmm. I know. I thought that was really touching that she would have her niece make her that dress for that particular occasion. Um, And she felt like that was a very significant event because it told the story of the American Indian, not just in the past, but where things were going in the future. Mm. So that's a good touching little anecdote. Um, Ross died four years later at almost 100, a few months before her 100th birthday. But, and are you ready for some goosebumps? She lived long enough to see her work help launch the first Native American astronaut into orbit. That's so cool. I wonder who who that astronaut was. I wish wish we had figured that out, but we didn't. Psych, it's the next person we're going to talk about, John Harrington. Commander (laughs) John Harrington, if you give him his full due, all right? Which you ought to. So check this transition out, right? Did you know? that NASA began a mission to punch an asteroid last week. Oh, I love this story so much. Yeah, they did. They straight up launched a whole dang spaceship 
with the goal of smashing into an asteroid in order to protect the world someday to see okay. if they can just push a meteorite or an asteroid, excuse me, right? It's like, it's so dang American, I could cry. <laughs> it needs a little more Michael Bay and it could become like the national like claim. This is what we right. do. We launch, we launch stuff into space and smash it together. We America. punch asteroids with spaceships. That's right. It's like hashtag America. Everybody likes to think America is like represented best by Captain America. No, it's the Incredible Hulk, people. Mm -hmm. We just face it, just accept it. It is who we are. Thankfully, that spacecraft will be piloted remotely and not by real American hero and member of the Chickasaw tribe, John Bennett Harrington, NASA astronaut and Navy commander. See that transition? Smooth. Mm -hmm. Smooth. I was writing One that. One could argue the real Captain America. <laughs> I'm just saying. Well, the real... I have read what you wrote and I might be willing to make that argument. You would have to be called Commander America, but yes. Yes. That's even better. It is actually pretty cool. So Harrington was born in 1958 in Wetumpka, Oklahoma. I don't know why I said that so weird. Uh, Commander Harrington had a pretty unusual childhood, actually. Uh, at least in my estimation of what a normal childhood would be. And that's because by the time he was a senior in high school, he and his family had moved 14 times and he lived in Colorado, Wyoming, and Texas. So 14 times, three states by his 18th birthday, which is uh, a horrible recipe for a good social life. But uh, right. I mean, apparently something in that tribulation gave us this badass like we're gonna read off his accomplishments moving forward because i actually didn't really have time to include much else or we wouldn't have gotten to his entire list of accomplishments no like like this is this is just it's so much and it's the and abbreviated it's so version impressive. this is abridged i'd still yeah. cut a bunch of it out like go out and find a book on commander harrington y'all because I, there's the stories there's stories that i'm sure are between the lines of all of the words we're about to say to you. Like, there's just probably enough to fill several, several books, novels, and probably an Amazon Prime television series. We're definitely not giving him justice uh, with our 15 to 20 minutes of summary here. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, but, okay, so we have been talking about his accomplishments. We will say that in a very encouraging turn of events for poor college freshmen everywhere, Commander Harrington actually failed in his first attempt at college. And instead, he worked on a survey team in the Colorado mountains. This was where he discovered his talent for math and a passion for solving real-life problems. So he returned to college at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs and received a degree in applied math in 1983. Commander Harrington had always wanted to be a pilot, so he joined the Navy, home of the best pilots in the U.S. military, uh, just saying. Facts. Hashtag facts. Hashtag facts. Navy brat right here. We'll claim that forever. Both of us. Oh, hey. That's hey. cool. Yep. My dad was Navy. So. All of my parents were Navy, so that's awesome. Yep. Um, and he received his commission from Aviator Officer's Candidate School in March of 1984. 
He was officially designated as a naval aviator then in 1985. He deployed to the Northern Pacific based from Naval Air Station ADAC, Alaska, twice, and once to the Western Pacific based from Naval Air Station Kubi Point in the Philippines. He was later selected to attend the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School in 1990. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Right. Test Pilot School is a big deal. Yeah. Top Gun wishes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Three years later, he was selected as an aeronautical engineering duty officer, meaning that he went to the U.S. postgraduate school and completed a Master of Science in Aeronautical Engineering. He was assigned as a special projects officer to the Bureau of Naval Personnel Sea Duty Component when he was selected for the astronaut program. That's also a BFD. Yeah. Like, this one paragraph is just a lot of big deal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. And like I said, this is a very condensed version of his accomplishments taken from an already condensed version of his accomplishments in his own CV from NASA. (laughs) Yikes. It's just absurd. It's absurd. Uh, Yes. In his time in the Navy, he logged over 3,800 flight hours in over 30 different types of aircraft. So just for just for reference, naval aviators have an eight-year commitment, and they fly roughly 300 hours a year on average, less if they're not activated, more if they are. So on average, roughly 300. And that means that most pilots end up with 2,400 flight hours in their career. Commander Harrington logged roughly three years and eight months more flight time than the average pilot. Because if you haven't guessed it by now, the man doesn't do anything by half measures. I'm not just going to be a pilot. I'm going to be one of the best ones. Um, and I used to be proud to say that, like, yeah, I can drive a car and a motorcycle. And now that kind of feels a little silly. So anyway, um, so that brings us to this Titan's 38th year on Earth. He'd done all of this by the time he was 38. He hasn't even begun to warm up. And he was already tired of the earthly bonds that kept him on this planet. So not satisfied with probably literally being able to fly every bird that conquered the atmosphere, he began a journey to escape both land and air. Two short years of training later, and he qualified for flight assignment as a mission specialist. He was assigned to the flight support branch of the astronaut office, where he served as a member of the astronaut support personnel team responsible for shuttle launch preparations and post-landing operations, which is the shortest I could make that sentence because between his responsibilities and where he was. He logged over 330 hours in space, served on the International Space Station, and did three spacewalks, totaling 19 hours and 55 minutes. That's 20 hours in the absolutely empty vastness of space protected only by a stay-puffed marshmallow suit. Oh, yeah. That blows my mind. it's It's so cool. Like 20 freaking hours. It just uh, I've always wanted I, to I don't go. think I can handle 10 minutes. I literally don't think I can handle right? 10 minutes. Like I wanted to, I, I, when I was little, I wanted to go on a spacewalk. I wanted to go out into space. I thought it would be super duper cool. 
And then I got older and I learned I could die. And then I started reading about like what being on a spacewalk is like and how much can just go wrong and how things are just different in space. There's a thing, there's a thing in space called like cold metal welding where all it takes is two pieces of metal just touching and they weld together. So you have to be careful of like what you touch to what because it might just end up permanently affixed. So everything is like super, super deliberate. And then the movie Gravity came out and that pretty much ruined any oh idea of gosh. me going to space uh, yeah. at all. Insanity. Yeah. That's nuts. And so like the, the, the next line in our, our actual research note says, here's the cool part. Yeah. But like it's all the cool part. He, his entire story is the cool part. So here's another cool part. Since he's an enrolled member of the Chickasaw Nation, NASA considers Harrington as the first American Indian astronaut to accomplish space travel and a spacewalk. On his trip to the ISS, he carried eagle feathers, arrowheads, wooden flutes, and flags of the Chickasaw and Crow Nations. While that doesn't sound like a huge deal, every pound, every ounce that astronauts carry into space has to be accounted for in the calculations that people like Mary Golda Ross are doing to determine whether or not that spacecraft can actually leave Earth's atmosphere and make it into orbit without crashing and burning. Um, so that means that they really don't get to take a whole lot extra with them. Literally, they're allowed 3.3 pounds for personal items. That's it. That's, it's not a lot. And it's also in a very small, it's like five inches by eight inches by two inches is all they've got to, uh, to carry their personal items with them. So really, really meaningful to bring all of that with him into space because he was sacrificing a lot of limited room, like space to bring a camera, for example. Um, that's a very common thing that astronauts, I also learned that astronauts bring musical instruments pretty frequently that they just leave up in the space station. So a few missions back, a bunch of the, the team got together and brought a entire alto saxophone up. That was like they <laughs> combined their stuff to bring the saxophone up um, because one of the people on the space station plays alto sax. So there's an alto, alto sax in space, in orbit, above our heads, just right. like going. Which, okay, A, that's really cool. And two, like, I think about how comfortable I am with my, my job on a daily basis and the kinds of compromises and things that I'm willing to do, the, the winging it that I'm willing to do with my daily job. Imagine being so comfortable going to space or with the idea of going to space that you're willing to like give up your personal items so that you can pull them together to bring a saxophone. <laughs> like what kind of a headspace do you have to get in to be like, yeah, cool. I don't need to bring my own stuff. Let's just bring a saxophone. Yeah. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. That's awesome. All that said, the Navy made the absolutely horrible decision to let the man retire in 2005, which was the wrong thing to do. They should have given him the keys to the aircraft carrier and said, you know, 
do awesome stuff with it. It was actually probably because <laughs> after having conquered land, air, and space, he decided to just conquer the sea by serving as the commander of the Nemo 6 mission aboard the Aquarius underwater laboratory, living and working underwater for 10 days. Because when you've done everything above water, what's next? And he's done a lot more, guys, since then. Um, (laughs) I just can't. Really cool guy. Really cool cool story. I am a little obsessed with the idea that potentially he might have occupied occupied the same airspace as my parents when they were in the Navy at some point. So maybe that would be really cool. Maybe you have a tangential connection with Commander I, America. I might have a six degrees of Kevin Bacon wow. with Commander Harrington, and that would make my life. That's Commander America to you. Gladly, willingly, will 100% say six degrees to Commander America. I don't know. I I love these stories so much, Um, especially if you consider them in the context of the not necessarily guaranteed, but statistically more likely setbacks that um, that they faced, both as Mary Ross's life being born in 1908, not not just as a woman quote unquote, Mm -hmm. but as a Native American woman um, and in Commander Harrington's life being born um, part of the Native population and moving all of the time. Like they had phenomenal trials to overcome and just have a normal life, let alone excel and become icons for people to look up to later in life. And I am so grateful that I got to learn about them this week because this is like inspiring juice to me. Now I want to go out and do something. I guess I got to go land on the moon, (laughs) take on (laughs) Mars, I guess. Like the bar is so high. Unless you have flown 30 aircraft or calculated how to keep those things from exploding when they enter space i mean i i don't know I, I can mean, you really brag I, I, can you even i don't think you can they kind of set the standard yeah it's these kinds of accomplishments are overwhelming just always yeah but then Knowing, like you said, knowing what we know about the challenges of everything from growing up on a reservation and in the Indian school system to um, to overcoming prejudice about your heritage and other people's stereotypes, I, it just makes these stories even better. Not that they needed to be better, but it makes them more satisfying. If you were satisfied with this podcast, you can let us know at firesidebreakdowns.com. Bam, nailed it. Look at that transition. Can you um, sideways? You can. Uh, when you're there, you can check out um, our episode, our show notes, our sources. We are popping on Google Scholar, guys. I, I love it. Like a lot of referral traffic coming from Google Scholar. It's either Instagram 
or Google Scholar, and there is no in between in our referrals. <laughs> it's really weird, actually. Um, so yeah, check that out. I really appreciate it. You can also find our social media there, and <clears throat> that will take you to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, our Twitter existence for what it is, um, and then there's also a link to leave us leave us a review and to go to our Patreon if you think that we are worth your investment. If I had to say one thing, one thing that you could do, it'd be give me money. But I understand <laughs> if you don't want to do that. So one thing that you could do to help this show is to leave a review. Yes. That is the one call to action I want you to walk away from this show with. Leave us a review. We love them, but more importantly, they help more traffic get into this show. More yes. eyes because better reviews means we get bumped up higher by the algorithm. So that's the one thing I want you to take away. Please leave a review. Yes. And and stars are wonderful. We love um, seeing all of the stars that you guys leave for us as ratings. But if you would take a few minutes to write a sentence or two, um, that actually goes a little bit further in yeah. that process. So that would be great. Although Thank we you. do have an average five-star rating on Psh. Apple Podcasts. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. The Pretty effort we put into it. this. So... Thank you, five-star raters. We really appreciate you. Yes. That's, it's good news to know that you guys love us so much. Good news. You, you know what else is good news? What? That segue? Yeah, it was. <sighs> yes. Um, another super awesome Native American person, Secretary of the Interior, Deb Howland. Boom. Three. We told you two, but it's actually three. It's actually three. Three awesome Native Americans. Well, and American if you count stories. our friend Chuck, that's four. Four. We squeezed two in. We, did a, we pulled a sneaky. We did. Um, Deb Halland is the first Native American to serve in the role of Secretary of the Interior. And she announced just recently that her department is forming a task force to identify and eliminate derogatory language, derogatory language from the names and descriptions of public lands, like the names of lakes and rivers and valleys that you see the big green signs for. The first target of this new initiative is the word squaw which we included an episode recently, actually, with some pretty significant hesitation, yeah. uh, because it, it is a derogatory term for Indigenous women. The word made its way into common vernacular, and I had no idea that there was any problem with it until uh, fairly recently, um, but it does appear in more than 650 places on federal land. And there are also many other place names throughout the United States, federal, and then also state and on private land that contain derogatory racial terminology. During a trip to Alcatraz Island last week to commemorate the 52nd anniversary of its occupation by Native American activists, which I know probably sounds like a hell of a sentence. Does sound pretty wild. Does sound pretty <laughs> wild. Another really cool story. Maybe one day we'll have a chance to tell it, but don't wait for us. Go yeah, look, it, go up. look it up. Um, I kind of like making November all about Native American history. So maybe in a year we can revisit four more stories. Right. We haven't talked about the Red Power Movement. I would love to dig some more into the stuff that happened around the creation of Indigenous Peoples Day. There's the occupation of Alcatraz Island, which is a big commemoration every single year. They have a sunrise um, ceremony on right around... Um, the anniversary every year. It's, it's really cool. 
But while she was visiting, uh, Deb Holland explained that the importance of the initiative was that our, our nation's public lands and waters should be places to celebrate the outdoors and our shared cultural heritage, not to perpetuate the legacies of oppression. Indigenous people, and in particular women, know how offensive this word is, and I'm proud to be in a position to rid federal places of it. Um, so our good news for this week is that the incredible accomplishments that Deb Howland has made are culminating at this point in some big changes to the way that we, that we name and talk about our public lands that are long overdue. And if this is where she's starting, I cannot wait to see what else she accomplishes yeah. during her time as Secretary of the Interior. Yeah. And that's like, pretty cool. Zero hesitation, action right out of the gate. I love it. And now she's got backup with good old she Chuck does. being at the National Park Service. I know. So pretty neat. Pretty neat. We've actually talked about uh, Miss Helen bef before, uh, several episodes ago. But um, yes. I'm glad to see her back making the good news section. Yes. With that, dear friends and fellow countrymen and people abroad, thank you. Because we do. We get listeners overseas. We, we wanna, do. We want to thank you for listening to us if you are, in fact, overseas. Oh, hey, Ireland. We oh, hey. Yeah, we see you, Ireland. We see you. Uh, we've had a couple Swedish listeners. Mm -hmm. Now. I feel like I saw some Iceland recently. Uh, could be. Could be. Or could be a bunch of people using VPNs. We'll never yeah. know unless you tell us. So hey, drop we us a see note. you tech savvy listener. Yeah. Who's right. probably IP spoofing so you can get the good content on that. Right. We know. It's a good, good. Anyway, until we come back to you next week with more nonsense and great storytelling to fill your ear holes. I only say that because it makes Robin grimace every time. <laughs> Take care of each other.